Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey there, Cynical listeners. Check it out. Our first commercial message, and it's actually for something many of our listeners are going to find very tempting. Fly direct to Hangzhou from the U.S. for as little as $493 round trip on United Airlines, the only airline offering nonstop flights to Hangzhou. For $493, you can ring in the year of the rooster as you sip Lungjing tea on the shores of West Lake. But hurry, you have to purchase before February 1st, which is, yipes, just a few days away. So fares from $493 round trip, visit united.com for details and booking and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we discussion current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina offers the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day through a free email newsletter, a smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today co-host Jeremy Goldcorn and I bring you the second half of our conversation with Sidney Rittenberg. As the first American to join the Chinese Communist Party, Sidney got to know many of the luminaries of the Chinese Revolution during his years at Yan'an and beyond, and he spent a total of almost 16 years in solitary confinement in two long stretches. If you haven't heard the first half, we urge you to hit pause and go listen to that before giving this one a listen. But before you do that, a couple of announcements. First, Jeremy and I will be back in Beijing in February, and we'll have a couple of live events some of our Beijing-based listeners or anyone who happens to be in town will hopefully come join us for. First, we'll be doing a live podcast taping at The Bookworm with Jane Perlez, Pulitzer Prize-winning correspondent for The New York Times, and we'll be talking about China's foreign policy in this fast-changing time. That's going to be on Saturday, February 11th at 7.30, and tickets will be 100 RMB. They should be available at The Bookworm or on its website, BeijingBookworm.com. We're also going to be doing a live podcast taping with one of our very favorite China reporters, Chris Buckley, who has never been on the show before. And he joined the New York Times a couple of years ago after a long and storied career with Reuters. He'll be chatting with us about Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership. And that's going to be at the Yale Center on Tuesday evening, February 14th. What better way to celebrate Valentine's Day, huh? The event will be free, but seating is limited, and we'll need you to register. So just send us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com with the subject heading Yale Center Event, and we'll make sure to send you back a ticket and save you a seat. We are incredibly excited about both of these events, and we look forward to seeing you. And now, part two of our conversation with Sydney Rittenberg, recorded in early December at Sydney's winter home in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
I want to talk a little bit about China in the United States uh, um, as an American. I mean, we've we've all read now John Tompkins' book, and I mean, I certainly would agree with you at least about the first half of the book that it's excellent, and he does talk about this. You, you in your own book, uh, have t- I've talked about how. Americans were personally very, very popular, even though people constantly appended the word imperialist to the name. We talked to John and uh, we talked to him about this book. And it seems to me that, that he describes this pattern of unrealistically high expectations, which are, you know, because we love each other and then dashed hopes and disappointments and then overreactions and taking things all together too personally. And there is this, this basic love hate relationship that goes on. And it seems to have really very much impacted your own life. Talk about how you were treated as an American and how your your American identity entered into this whole equation that is the life of Sidney Rittenberg. Well, I don't think I suffered from being an American. I think what I did suffer from was forgetting that I was a foreigner and getting so deeply involved in internal Chinese political life and not realizing how dangerous it was. Right. You know, there's an old Chinese saying about a sparrow who builds a nest in a curtain, in a theater curtain, doesn't know that the curtains are going to come down one day. (laughs) Two of my Chinese friends, after I got out of prison a second time, both had the same comment, you forgot you were a foreigner. It's it's happened to me, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I felt I got a kind of special love for being a foreigner, like I was the pet American. You know, people call me uh, affectionately, they call me Yangui, the foreign <laughs> devil. <laughs> because that can be used affectionately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it certainly can. Well, what about the, the Soviets? You describe how, despite the fact that prior to the Sino-Soviet split in 1960, the USSR, it was considered China's big brother. But you yourself, and I think many of your friends and colleagues, didn't really seem to like the Soviets. Uh, why was this? And how do you see China's relationship with Russia today? Well, I think on the first question, the Soviets were unconscious chauvinists, very, very bad chauvinists. It was more apparent in Vietnam on my two trips to Yan'an. They treated the Vietnamese horribly. But, um, for example, the wives of the Chinese, of the Soviet experts used to go down to the Wanfujing department store and they would talk to the salespeople they would call them comrade, but they called them comrade in the same tone of voice that people in the South Carolina used to say, boy. <laughs> you know, they really looked down on them. Mm. And uh, I think that was clear, very clear to the Chinese. Uh, also, you know, in the Friendship Hotel, there was this great big dining room and big room uh, central hotel. Then there were little side hotels with little dining rooms. Nobody but the Soviets were allowed in the big dining room. Huh. So the Czechs and the Poles and the Bulgarians and that riffraff, they were not allowed in there. And our friend, who was the general manager at the hotel, talked to the chief Soviet advisor 
And he said, you know, it's embarrassing for us because you're all our guests and we have to segregate you. That's not right. And the Soviet advisor said, it's not about prejudice, it's about security. It's to guarantee our security that they didn't let let the little comrades in. Also, the other foreign experts used to pile in three or four to a car to go back and forth. The Soviets had to have one person, one car. All sorts of things like that that irritated people. And um, if you look at China's relationship with Russia today, um, do you see any ghosts or echoes of, of the past? Well, I think Russians and Chinese normally do not love each other. Americans and Chinese do, or Canadians and Chinese. The natural tendency is to want to make friends. And Joe and Lai commented on that at length once to us. But um, neither do Chinese and Brits. Naturally love each other. No, no they do. They don't. No. And Joe commented on that. No, I, I, I don't have the empirical evidence to back that up, but it certainly rings true to me. Yeah, it certainly rings true. Yeah. Sydney, can you tell us about the conditions in the prison when, where you were kept, especially the, the second confinement, um, the food, the interrogations, and so forth? And how did you stay sane? Hmm. Flatterer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Relatively. <laughs> <laughs> differed widely over different periods. When I first was locked up in 1968, up until 72, it was wild. And when you say wild, what do you, what do you mean? Well, the people who had been in charge of the prison were now locked up in the prison. And the place was being run by radical young people, lunatics, you could say, <laughs> who were really mean to the prisoners, but obviously much less mean to me. They didn't curse me. They didn't push me around. You weren't physically tortured? No, um, mentally tortured in that they were, during the interrogation periods, they would try to keep you from sleeping they would bang on the door to wake you up. I'm a good sleeper. I would just go back to sleep again. That's one step to maintaining sanity is be a good sleeper. I think that's very, yeah. very important. And um, the interrogations were a kind of third degree. I mean, they would shout at you. Sometimes they would come up, gather around me, shaking their fists, but nobody ever touched me. And I was pretty sure they wouldn't, being an American citizen. And you were not allowed to deny that you were a spy. Of course, I did anyway, but you they would shout at you. You weren't supposed to. It was funny because I could tell that they didn't really believe what they were throwing at me, the charges, mm. because... Once the chief interrogator, there were usually nine people, the chief interrogator once said, do you have faith in the proletarian headquarters or not? 
that being the name for Zhang Qing and the Cultural Revolution leading group was called the Proletarian Headquarters. Do you have faith in the Proletarian? I'm a counter-revolutionary. They're asking me, do I have faith in the Proletarian Headquarters? <laughs> so I said, absolutely. So he said, well, it's the Proletarian Headquarters that say you're a spy. And I said, well, if you write it down like that, I have faith in the headquarters. Headquarters say I'm a spy, therefore I'm a spy. You write it down like that, and I'll sign it. Glared at me. <laughs> they didn't like your little syllogism. No. <laughs> so anyway, and that's the way it went. What about maintaining sanity? I mean, you were in solitary confinement, and, and this is, I mean, it's it's very well attested that that, I mean, very quickly will drive somebody. I mean, we are these gregarious social, you know, you social critters. We don't like being confined alone. The um, We start talking to volleyballs and doing things like that. The medical editor in the New Yorker magazine, I've forgotten his name, Indian, he wrote a long piece on solitary several years ago in which he said mm, no one... I did read that, yeah. Huh? I did read that, yeah, absolutely. You did? Yeah. No one can be in isolation for more than a few months and keep their sanity. Right. So I, I thought of him, you when I read that. Yeah. yeah. So I sent him an email and said, sorry, you're wrong. And he sent back and he said, well, my hat's off to you. I couldn't do it. And I sent back and I said, nobody thinks they can do it in advance. Um, and the first time, the year in darkness, I cracked up totally, just hysterical, you know. But first of all, a basic position immediately upon being locked up, I made up my mind, you cannot let this ruin your life. It's horrible, but you can't let it ruin your life. You have only one life to lead. You can't let this ruin it. So what are you going to do? You learn how to deal with it. And you can learn. For example, after a couple of years, the second time, after a couple of years, suddenly one day I think, gosh, even if I ever get out of this place, which I didn't know, I can never be a normal human being again. I don't know how to talk to people. I don't know how to follow a connected conversation. Don't know how to handle myself in society. I'm never going to be normal. I'm only fit to be locked up alone. And I felt very down. And then it's like this little voice in the back of your head starts up and it says, wait a minute, when did you start feeling down? Was it when they first locked you up? No. It's when you told yourself this story, I can't be normal. So it's your own story that's got you down. It's not reality. And once you see that, poof, it's gone. Now you have a weapon that you can fight with. When you have mood swings, try to trace it back to where it started. And it's often not where you thought it started. And... Try to expose it, get rid of it, and you build up your strength. 
I think you had a super abundance of psychological stability to begin with. I mean, these, you had deep reserves of it. I mean, this is a coping mechanism not everyone would, would come up with. I think it, my hat is off to you too. I, I can't even travel by myself. I go crazy. I mean, <laughs> I don't think I was that strong psychologically. You know, I had, uh, I had an, I had several real panic experiences when in the army when we had to learn to climb telephone poles and uh, put up wires. I think that's pretty normal. <laughs> I, I would not chalk that up as a, a, as evidence of psychological fragility. Well, okay, I mean, that's good old fear of heights, right? I mean, I'll tell you. After developing this program of managing my mind, trying to channel my emotions to rational thinking and purpose, not to let negative emotions tear me apart. After learning this stuff, certainly have a much happier and more stable life, both of us. You didn't have you know, some sort of spiritual uh, backstop to this either. You weren't a particularly you know, devout or religious Jew, were you? No. Uh, I tried that, but it didn't work. Okay. Because I saw through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah let, me, let me ask you quickly just a couple of questions about, um, you know, you had newspapers. You knew what was going on in the outside world, and, and there were major events that, that happened knew while you were... what the People's Daily tells you about what's going on in the So outside. let's throw some of these at you. For example, the, the Nixon and Kissinger opening. What did you make of that as that was happening? Um, I saw a little note in the paper that Henry Kissinger had come to Beijing, and uh, I was pulled out to the interrogation room after years of silence and asked, did I know Richard Nixon? <laughs> no, I didn't. He's, a, he's American. You're American. Well, yeah. I didn't know him. So what do you know about him? Well, I said something I probably wouldn't have said today. I said, there's one thing about Mr. Nixon that's very honest. And they said, what's that? And I said, he, he looks like a crook. <laughs> <laughs> they were not amused. <laughs> but that's all I... And Watergate? <laughs> they, were, they reported on Watergate, presumably. In the Chinese paper, there was like two lines. President Nixon has resigned... In connection with the Watergate incident, Shreeman. Yeah, Shreeman should be it. So I thought, what's that? It must be some hydropower project <laughs> that he got caught with his hand in the till or something. <laughs> what about uh, Joe and Lai's death and, and Mao himself, his death? Did you hear about those when you yes, were inside? Yes, I did. I was devastated by Joe's death. Mm. Devastated for like a week. And you know, it's very funny because. The keepers, the Ministry of Public Security staffers, all went into deep mourning every day until after the funeral. The troops who were very close to Jiangqing, the, what is it, the 4381 troops, the unit that guarded the Central Committee, uh -huh. very left, they only put on a black armband the day of the funeral. So I'm sitting there. I had torn off the cuff of my black prison pants and made an armband. 
and I'm sitting there with my black armband on, and one of the guard cadre comes by, and he opens the little door, and he shouts at me. He says, what are you doing with that thing on your arm? So I looked at him, and I was so hurt, I began tearing. Then he got embarrassed, and he said, look at it, it's about to fall off, tie it on securely. And he, <laughs> and he went away. But then... Good Mal, save. Huh? Good save. Yeah. Then Mao died. Mm. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is tremendous. I mean, this is a blow at the world revolution, much more serious than Joe and Lai, but I didn't have a tear, and I couldn't understand it. Hmm. I kept asking myself, what, why don't I feel it? Which shows, I think, that my emotional brain was smarter than my thinking brain. Did you feel the earthquake? Oh, boy, did I. It, it shook and shook and shook. I remember waking up like one thirty in the morning and mm-hmm. seeing the floor going like this. I was on the second floor and thinking it shouldn't be this long, you know, it shouldn't be. And they immediately, they rushed the guard troops in and they moved the prisoners one by one out into the courtyard, each one with an individual tent. And that was great because I got to talk with the, the guard. There's nobody around to watch him. Well, So uh, what did you think about the purge of the Gang of Four in 1976 uh, and their trial? And um, That must have gladdened you. I mean, you must have had certain attitudes about her. Well, they got a fair trial. I know it was fair because we were told the verdict before the trial <laughs> and the when, sure we, mark of a when we got to New York, I was in, I was on the old McNeil Lehrer report. Sure, yeah. And I told uh, Jim Lehrer, mm, asked Jim me the question, "What do I think the verdicts are going to be?" And I'll tell you, and I did. Yeah, I mean that's that's it's, it's a tradition they've kept to to this day. You don't basically bring someone up on charges unless they're already deemed to be guilty. Um, what about you know? There were many true believers of of your of your age or of your day, who really thought that Dung had mounted a counter-revolutionary rightist coup. This was the you know the the triumph of the capitalist rotors. Uh, I was at UC Berkeley in the mid nineteen eighties, and that was their standard line was that it, would, it had been a revisionist coup, and that that Dung was a a, a criminal. Well, I think it's pretty clear. Dung saved China. Absolutely, yeah. That no question about it. Man, tremendous courage. And, you know, he didn't cook it up out of his head. He, he saw what was happening, and he took what was working and, and, uh, and spread it around. Um, he certainly had his blind side, but uh, he certainly saved the operation. Yeah, no question. The best thing he did, or one of the best things he did was guaranteed to the cadre, you're not going to be victimized anymore. No big movements at which you're raked over the coals. Yeah, it was no longer going to be a blood sport. Right, right. But did you have that attitude right at the beginning in the early 80s? Or you know, was there a period where you, you felt that the revolution had been betrayed? I didn't feel that it had been betrayed, but I thought that I agreed with Chen Yun's point 
that if they didn't pay attention to the work style of the cadre and they allowed corruption to grow unchallenged, that it would be a big problem. And I thought, he, you know what really got me was when the Minister of Commerce was exposed by two reporters for corruption, for inviting friends and business partners and so on to feast on the public tab. And the Minister of Commerce was fired. And the two reporters were given big... Um, Elevations. Yeah. yeah. And then Dung personally intervened and restored the Minister of Commerce and criticized and took down the two reporters. I thought, that's not good because it's legalizing corruption. Later, I thought, maybe he knew what he was doing. Maybe he had just put back a leading structure and maybe he was worried that another mass movement would sweep it all into the dustpan and he'd be, it'd be chaos again. Maybe he was right. I don't know. So I have a question. That, um, it's a little bit like asking you how, how you stayed sane in a way. You know, I started this website, dunway.org, in 2003, and I grew it into a little business, and it was my entire life's work. I, I was very passionate about it, and it was starting to even make sense financially. And it was blocked by the Chinese government in 2009. Um and I felt as though, you know, what I'd been working on for so many years had been destroyed. And I began a period of being quite bitter about uh, the Chinese government and the Communist Party. And in fact, it sometimes flared into almost a fistfight with me and Kaiser at one point because I, I, I became so negative about it. Oh, it didn't the, get that bad. Well, <laughs> maybe you first didn't realize all, I was about to punch him. he's too big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's a softy. <laughs> as long as he doesn't have his swords. But, you know, it took me really until I moved to the United States last year and had a lot of distance with China and didn't sort of have to deal with it every day for a little while for me to relax uh, about it and, and, and get rid of this bitterness. But of course, you know, what I suffered was so tiny and ins inconsequential compared with the trials that the Communist Party put you through. Yet you retain an extremely sunny and positive attitude uh, towards, you know, the country of China, but also the Communist Party. How, I would just call it a fair and dispassionate attitude. A fair and, well, there we go. Um, how, how have you managed to do that? Well, I think the principle involved is my father used to say, never judge the truth by whether it's good for you or not. Hmm. If well, it's, if that's, it's that's so, it's so, whether it's good for you or bad for you. Uh, but um, it's, it's a matter of train, training, really. You know, you get beat up, you get beat up, you develop scar tissue, and you learn to deal with it. There's certainly a lot to be upset about. Um, I really don't know whether Xi Jinping is going to succeed or not. In the, the major economic reforms have been set aside for the time being, actually. Yes, they have. 
So is he going to be able to go by and stick with it and push them through or just settle for what is or what? Who knows? It's very hard to tell. It is. Say what you will about the outcome here, but your wholehearted participation in the political movements of the Mao period, it was compelled by very deeply felt idealism on your part. Absolutely. A dedication to social justice that may have had its roots in, you know, in in your youth. I think it it almost certainly did. Uh, Do you feel that there's anything like this sense of idealism, this mission left in the current Chinese Communist Party? Or do you, do you feel like it's all devolved into just pure pragmatism into maintaining stability and using ideology really to shore up flagging legitimacy? Yeah, I don't really know the answer. There must be some people. You know, uh, five or six years ago, I went to lecture at Tsinghua University at John Thornton's sure. seminar. Mm-hmm. And after I talked, there was this young woman, a graduate student, who said, she said, I joined the Communist Party at Tsinghua because I believe in the ideals of communism. But my classmates all make fun of me. They say she just wants to get ahead. She's doing it for career. And I don't know how to deal with it. And she, she started crying. So there are there are people like that. Um, that's the question about Xi fighting against corruption. You, he made a speech to the young people about a year ago. He said, you want to get rich? Fine. You can get rich. But if you want to get rich, do not join the party. It will not be allowed. Well, does he have something to replace that? Does he have something that will imbue those young people going into government with the will to serve without being materially rewarded. They see their classmates making hay, going into business, and they're plodding along working in the government. Is that going to work or not? I don't know. Do you have any insights into the current generation of leadership from your acquaintance with, well, in many cases, their parents, including Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jongshin, um, stuff that maybe isn't out there in news stories and published accounts of, of the current leadership that makes you think about them in a way that would be useful for us to understand what they're thinking? Well, I think Xi Jongshin was great. Mm. And I hope that some of that rubbed off on his son. And... Um, you know, we had uh, one encounter, uh, three big American investors went into a joint venture to build a power plant in Fujian when she was governor of Fujian. And after they did that, everybody started going and putting power plants in Fujian. So the price of power went way down and they were stuck with the original contract price. So they were all losing their shirts. I mean, the it was DuPont Capital, Bechtel, and American Express, three struggling little companies. <laughs> so the CEO of Bechtel went to Fuzhou and asked to talk with Xi, and he wouldn't see him. 
He said, uh, it's not my place as governor to take part in trade issues. So um, they retained Price Waterhouse. Price Waterhouse couldn't deal with it, so they retained us, mom and pop. So we sent our son, Sid Jr., down to Fuzhou with a handwritten letter from me saying, get this, absolutely no logic. I said, when I arrived in Yan'an in 1946, it was your father who took me around meeting the country people and taught me about the villages and who took care of me in Yan'an and so on. Now I'm sending my son to see you and I hope you'll help him like your father helped me. So when Sid Jr. got there, he invited him to the governor's mansion. They had dinner. They talked till midnight. And a week later, they renegotiated the deal, and everything was fine. That's our only really personal experience with the guy, but it gave me a good impression. We talked earlier today before we recorded about uh, Jim Fallows' piece recently in The Atlantic, where he kind of rattles off a long litany of all the ways in which China is exhibiting very illiberal tendencies. Uh, it's a, a backslide across many dimensions, both in domestic policy as well as a, a more assertive foreign policy. I, I have called these, I mean, I use a shorthand, the, the new truculence. What, what miss, What's missing in Fallows' article really is an explanation of why this might be happening. I mean, he just sort of writes it off as, as you know, rising paranoia and anti-foreignism. But uh, I've always suspected that there's something behind this. What, do, you, do you have any idea why things have gone where they've gone? I think they have two great fears. One is fear of Gorbachev-type collapse of the party. And the other is fear of color revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think they're haunted by these, and it governs some of their actions. Otherwise, what are you afraid of? Why do you have to be so tough on controlling opinion? I mean, I agree with Fallows that these are negative features. What I don't agree on is that they're, they're the decisive features that add up to China has gone bad. I don't think that conclusion is justified. I think they'll get over this. I asked um, one of the ranking Chinese foreign policy people two years ago about this. Why is it happening? And he looked very grave and he said, this is not a policy that the whole leadership agrees on. Mm, Very interesting. He didn't tell you who we should cultivate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Sid, so in, in, in recent years, many people, including younger Chinese, but also a lot of foreign commentators, um, have seen the ideological tightening under Xi Jinping as a return to the Cultural Revolution. And I know you've argued strongly against this. And I completely agree with you that aside from a, a stronger role for ideology in state media and the education system and so forth, there's really nothing in common between Xi's China and the Cultural Revolution. Um, but 
as I was reading the chapters of your book about the Cultural Revolution in recent weeks, it struck me that there were echoes I could see in America, in Trump's America. Um, some of it in, in terms of his, you know, if it was in East Asia, we'd call it a cult of personality. Um, and some of it in the way that he's used the so-called alt-right, basically white supremacists and nationalists, extremists on the internet, like little devils, um, which, you know, made me remember Mao's phrase about the central ministry of propaganda being the palace of the prince of hell. And he was going to use the little devils to, you know, attack the, the prince. Does this comparison make any sense to you? Do you see any echoes, rhymes? Well, I do. <laughs> in, in Trump? In, yeah. in Trump and in the Trump way and he has stirred up support. Um, sort of, I mean, the, the anti-intellectualism, just the sort of uh, uh, anti-expert sentiment that he's, he's seeking to use. You know, I think this is a very negative uh, current in American politics, but there's no way it's going to win. The uh, when the public catches on, as they have not yet, I think, to what's going on, I think there'd be a terrific reaction. I, I think the people that are going to suffer under the Trump administration are mainly the ones that voted for him. You Let know, us like hope that is so. <laughs> the white working class types and others, middle class, that believed in him, voted for him. They're going to learn that He's not their representative. He's only his own Trump representative. And uh, there's a kind of paralysis right now. There's kind of a shock reaction among liberals, it seems to me, that how could this happen? You know, what can we do? I think they'll have to figure out what to do. This guy is not going to is not going to take the country over. I don't believe that. I really hope that you're you're right. I, I he's too exposed. Hope. He's too open. He's too arrogant. Sydney, the the China watching community has been awash in speculation about how this incoming Trump administration is actually going to handle this most important bilateral relationship. And um, you know, we're in, involved every day in conversations about this. Do you have a take? What's your what's your position on this? Well, I think what's going to happen, what's happening is, at first, it's going to be very bumpy. At first, the relationship is going to get tied in a big knot, probably. But after that, he, this guy is essentially a speculating businessman. And when he sees he's missing up on good deals, he's going to start making deals. And no way the Chinese are going to make deals uh, using Taiwan as a bargaining chip. That's right. So, you know, they're being very indulgent now. They're saying he doesn't understand, you know, he's not mature and so on. So he's not going to like that either. No, he sure uh, won't. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Our, our sincere thanks for taking the time to speak with us again, Sydney. Well, it's a sincere pleasure to talk with you guys. I hope that we'll actually have time again uh, to have you on again. Um, there's, you know, a, a million other topics that we haven't even yet touched on. Uh, 
But anyway, uh, as you know, at the end of our show, we like to do recommendations of, of books, articles, music, um, anything that might be of interest to our listenership. So while you're thinking of one, let me just give a quick plug. I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter on SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. And if you like our podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps. It means an awful lot to us. Under recommendations, Jeremy, what do you have for us? Um, I'd like to recommend a TV series on Amazon you, called... You watch TV now? Well, on the computer. Uh, Goliath. Um, we don't have a TV, actually. Oh, for that's good. Yeah, it's very good. It's the actor's Billy Bob Thornton. Who yes. Yeah. Plays an alcoholic lawyer uh, taking on a, a massive corporation. A lot of fun. Yeah, I've heard that's a very good show. I'll have to check that out. Sydney, are you ready with one? Well, I'm glommed on to Breaking Bad. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Isn't it just the greatest show? And once you're done with that, you'll try Better Call Saul, which is the sort of spinoff series that has the lawyer Saul Goodman. Oh, yeah, there's, there's another one on Better and, Call yeah, Saul. Yeah, what yeah. a character. Oh, he's great. It's, it's, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Oh, and he's, I, yeah, I, tremendous I, depth, too. I mean, it's it's in the same you know style. The dialogue is every bit as clever. The stories are... are and then you know, you'll see some great little cameos from, from people from Breaking Bad. Fantastic. Yeah, and Goliath is good. You're yeah, saying, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, Breaking Bad destroyed my sleep for a week. I binge yeah, watched the whole problem. thing. Yeah, I'm going to kill the guy that recommended it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in the golden age of American television right now. Yes. Do you have another one besides Breaking Bad? I mean, that's always a good record. Well, I was watching House of Cards, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but really, it's not as good as Breaking Bad. No, no, it's not, not. as well done. No. First season is very gripping. The second season just sort of falls off, and by the third, it's and just. There's a lot of overacting, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Spacey overacts. He does, and you know, I mean, I think we're all offended by his bad Southern accent. Really, <laughs> really, yeah. South Carolina yet? Right, 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 right. Well, you can you can do the remake of it. Yeah. So my, my recommendation is the pilot Vanishing Point Fountain Pen. Uh, I, I was a real fountain pen aficionado when I was a graduate student and I started getting back into it again. I actually find that I, I you know, I write better when I, I'm writing by hand. I'm a little more economical. Uh, and the ink to go with it also made by pilot. It's called Hiroshizuku. Hiroshizuku is a, a tr- tremendously good ink. Pilot Vanishing Point. Yeah, the Vanishing Point. I'll show it to you if we're done here. If you if you like your pens, it's a phenomenally good pen. See, I don't even know about Sub China. Oh well, now you do. Yeah. Okay, well now you do. You'll have to check it out, and I think you know, proselytize on our behalf. It's very very useful. Jeremy here is uh, is the editor in chief of it. It's a, a really good roundup of of daily news from China, and we put it out religiously, and you know, five days a week with plenty of original content and, of course, with our podcast on it. I used to watch Danway. Oh, yeah. Danway. Was, um, we miss Danway. We're, we're still trying to, um, you know, uh, are we still recording, actually? Yes, we are. For afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I can say that for afterwards. Let me just take us out real quick here. But One of these days. Yes. Thanks so much again. Oh, it's a pleasure. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to An La Cheng and to Soraya Durabi from SupChina. Very special thanks to Sydney and to Wang Yulin for letting us into their home. 
Drop us an email at Seneca at Subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at, at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.